You are now listening to Out of the Blank. 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 Well, welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. I'm here with Rich Cox. (laughs) Yeah, good to be here. And good morning to you. So tell me a little bit about yourself and what do you do professionally? Um, What I do professionally, um, I actually am a director of a not-for-profit organization um, that believes in, you know, multicultural education um, and advocates for multicultural education and other aspects of education within our communities um and this is a wide range of stuff and it goes everywhere from uh stem programs you know all the way up to just your typical uh you know k-12 reading uh writing and arithmetic okay so what about multicultural education because i feel like a lot of what the educational system does does uh at least in school systems is the common maybe multicultural day or something where you have like an independence day or a black, um, whatever African-American history month. It's like, but isn't it all technically all of our history? And it seems like, like, I mean, I've been to a class where they talk, they call it black American history and I'm sitting there just listening to the syllabuses and stories, which are all based on like white guilt shit. I'm like, <laughs> when, when did we decide that? Like, it was okay to teach it this way. Like, honestly, it's real. Yeah. But it's all, it's supposed to make the other person that's listening who's maybe not of that color feel like shit in a way. It's like, when do we (laughs) define race as something to judge another person on? Why don't we just look at people as people and we're all, you know, in this country trying to survive together or on this world trying to survive together. Yeah, that's true. And sadly enough, you know, we let uh, class structure, and education structure, you know, start to define uh, racism. Because when you teach subjects in a multicultural format, you take in all aspects of the history of how certain things are derived. And we've seen that in subjects like mathematics. Uh, mathematics obviously wasn't taught from a straight line. Uh, there were other cultures, there were other aspects of it that made the mathematical concepts that we have today you know, real. Well, a lot of our basic functions in the education system, such as literature, that all comes from Greece. That all comes from, you know, a whole nother side of the world compared to us over here where we think a lot of this stuff gets, oh, that was invented in America. Well, half the shit we use in America wasn't even invented here. It all comes from (laughs) a different culture. We just turned it into the form it is now. I mean, you mostly see it when it comes to music. A lot of people consider like, oh, that's a stereotypical, that's that's urban music, that's whatever white people music. It's like, no, music is music and it's meant for whoever it is to, supposed to listen to it. The thing that comes across with music is the idea that it's supposed to make you feel an emotion. Um, it's supposed to make you get something from it and also be able to understand it. You know, how many times do you listen to a song and it feels like the song was tailored for you? You know, it. I'm I'm like rap music. I like all types of music, and I understand it all. But to classify it as a certain races only music is really doing the wonderful art or creative piece kind of a disservice. Yeah, and and sadly enough, you know, a lot of things are not incorporated into that because what you're saying is correct. 
And, you know, when some, when people start to put these definitions and then put it into these different boxes, you know, everything gets divided. And unfortunately the division in music, I've used music as an example since you brought it up. Um, the division has become a marketable sense because now when we honor our musicians on an annual basis, we have different award shows for every culture. You know, we have ones that directly towards, you know, um, uh, country music. We have ones that do directly towards R&B. We have directly ones towards, you know, the Latino crowd. And all of this came about because a lot of these genres have felt they were not properly represented under the main stage, you know, for the Grammy Awards. So, well, you know, we're not getting our fair share out here. So we'll, you know, extract it out and then we'll do our own on the side to recognize those who weren't recognized on the main stage. Well, then the marketers come along and say, well, you're correct. Start your own on something on the side. We'll market that as well. So now everybody has this multi-billion dollar industry and as we keep dividing and dividing and dividing it. What are we doing? We're basically just keeping ourselves apart and not letting the transition you know, take its place. Yeah, well, you look at music and I, it, it's become more industry than uh, creativity anymore, only on the concept of they found out in the beginning like, oh, shit this type of music brings this type of audience. So let's just make music for this audience. And that's where we ended up stereotypical, I guess, stereotizing um, just music in general. That's a black music. That's, that's whatever. That's classification of this and this. It's like, what about the people that enjoy that music that aren't of that color? You're not advocating for them just because they're maybe someone didn't show up to a concert because they didn't want to feel uncomfortable or something. And I'm like, that's not a problem with, um, the music, that's a problem with that person and the music industry in general. I mean, I've been a minority my whole life only on the concept of, yeah, I'm white, but I work in an all Latino housekeeping staff. Okay. I've watched the barriers of race get put up and I've watched it get torn down. You know, it feels like every time I tear down that wall, it's been the past three years I've been working there. It feels like I'm becoming part of the family. It feels like the walls go right back up if you don't do something right. But it's the concept of looking at another individual and having a type of empathy and empathy cannot be race or stigmatized. You know, music, education, all these things, they're all very, very one-sided. The education system is a little bit flawed in general. You know, they're teaching you to teach a system or craft and create a person that works a nine to five life. And that's not a lot of people nowadays. You're seeing oh, no. yeah. self-entrepreneurship where it's rising and it's like it, it totally changes the game. I mean, there's a kid that can get famous just off playing video games back in the day when people used to be like, you can't play fucking games and make a life <laughs> off of it. Next thing you know, that person's buying their house. Like, I just kicked you out, son. It's like, how did you do that? Well, I was playing video games. You know, <laughs> that's true. Yeah, that is very, very true. And that, you know, really started um, my uh, visualization of what I call Mondays off. Um, the whole Mondays off concept came around because of through my travels around the world. Eating, drinking, laughing with different cultures across the face of the earth. Um, it became a, this, a different concept of what we call work to live and live to work. You know, the other cultures looked at lifestyle and they looked at family. They looked at, you know, their own self-wellness ahead of their work life. And we have more of a relaxed and more of a condensed work schedule because they believe in the time of family. They believe in the time of, 
you know, self-wellness. And a lot of self-wellness, like we just brought out, brings about the entrepreneurial shit. You know, getting a chance to meditate on the side can bring a lot, a lot of ideals out there to the world. And so when you take a look around, like you said, you know, here in America, we just kind of like train you for that nine to five and, you know, crank out that 40 hour work week. And, you know, that's how you're supposed to be part of the American system. Whereas other countries look at it and say, well, you know, we look at it in a more to reduce schedule. We'll get our work done. We'll, but we like to put other things out there, you know, first in terms of family, uh, self-wellness. So a large majority of the countries took Mondays off or they took the, what we consider the beginning of the work week. They took that Monday off. Usually a lot of the holidays, uh, I'll give you a perfect example, like Resurrection Sunday or some people say Easter Sunday. The day after, you know, those, that Sunday, that Monday, several countries across the world take that day off because they feel that people need to recover from family, you know, from self-wellness for that, you know, that, that time of being together. Yeah, well, you can only live with your family and see them. Like if everybody in your household was stuck, nowhere to go, nobody left the house for seven days in a week, somebody's reaching for a butter knife. It doesn't matter how much you love your family. You know, you need that that relaxation to yourself, but you can't live in complete isolation, obviously. But, yeah. you know, with these jobs now, you're seeing so many people work from home. They're crafting out their own lifestyle. I mean, that's healthy too, but it's also bad because then work is always home and then you start associating it with that, especially if it's bad work, you know, stuff you don't enjoy doing. But we live this life where you have to work Monday through Friday and have your weekends off. Well, I have like my Mondays and Tuesdays off and then I work weekends as well. So it's like you get to see the whole shift depending on where your job is. But there is a this this idea that you have to work five days a week. You have to work this whatever types and do, put in this certain amount of hours. It doesn't make any sense because half of that time you're just sitting there doing nothing. You know, half of that time is just there's hours where you sometimes might not have work. You might not have something and they just keep you there like in a, let's say, in an office position because that's just what the, that's what the, that's what the structure is. That's the template. Well, you have to be here for this many hours. It's like, but I got all my fucking work done. Can I go home? <laughs> well, that's true. And, you know, what's interesting, I looked at some of the structure of companies like um, Amazon, um, Google, um, even on uh, Deloitte is another, you know, major corporation. And, you know, they reflect exactly, uh, what you just said, you know, if you're coming in and you have a project to do, or you're working on a team concept and you got it knocked out within five hours and you were there from 10 to three. Well, there really is no reason for you to stay from three to six or three to five because that becomes a wasted time. You know, you're not really doing anything. You're really just sitting there. Yeah. So, my, I mean, I work at a hotel, man. We have our busy moments. We have our busy days where I won't get done until right when I'm supposed to go home. But then I have my days like, you know, it's slow. We have six people staying there at the hotel because it's wintertime. So, like, I'm done by 12 o'clock. I'm like, can I just go fucking home? They're like, Robbie, can you just not sit on your phone and get paid? I'm like, you can only do that for a good hour. And then you want to bang your head up against the wall. Like, yeah, there's rooms I can go in and watch TV. Okay. But you know what I could be doing without being at work and just sitting around and getting paid? I could be producing or doing something I want to be doing, getting groceries, doing a podcast. My mind starts running off and eventually I'm like, you got to let me go. Like I'm going stir crazy. I feel like I'm in prison right now. 
<laughs> yeah, that's true. And um, a lot of people, um, you know, do feel the same way. And in the workforce is starting to, um, to, to put up with it. They're starting to understand that, you know, we're living a time where not being productive can cause, you know, people to be, like you said, go kind of stir crazy. You feel enveloped. You feel like you're in a box. You feel like you're not being, you know, part of something. And because they just say, hey, you know, I know your work's done by 1.30, but you still got to stay till five. And oh my goodness, you're on your, you're on your smartphone for the, you know, the, we don't want you to be on your smartphone, you know, getting paid. We just want you to sit there and look at the computer screen. and Or yeah. stare at the floor. Like, yeah. All I'm doing is sitting here. I'm not, nothing beneficial is happening. You know, you don't need me anymore. So just let me go home. And then eventually my work was like, well, you're not wrong. And I'm like, yeah, so can I go? And they're like, if you really want to not get paid for doing nothing. And I'm like, yeah, I, it's honestly, I didn't think it would come to the point where I would, you know, deny free money, I guess, but I want to go home because this is just too much. Like it's, it's more mentally tolling because it feels like then you're sitting there waiting and you're getting paid. But that minute that five turns into five minutes, turns into 10 minutes, turns into an hour, turns into like a day. It goes slower and slower and slower when your brain's like, we could be doing other shit right now. Could be hanging out with your family. Could be doing something that's more beneficial into your life that's actually going to create moments in the time that you need with your loved ones rather than just sitting around getting paid for doing nothing. Well, like you say, it creates entrepreneurship. I mean, when the mind gets a chance to be creative outside of the box that's been put into. A lot of great things come out of it. You know, that's like the beginning of interventions. Do you think work systems should just change their way of thinking? Like you talked about it saying that they kind of are doing that a little bit, but like, how so? Like, do you think that it would just be easier if someone came up and said, hey, I got my work done. Do you really just want me to sit around here the whole time? Oh, definitely. Um, that's, I believe, I mean, because... You know, a lot of work that's done these days is usually done through project management and through um, project collaboration. Um, so once the projects are done, once those goals are met, you know, then, you know, either the workforce gets reassigned or just let the workforce go home and do what they need to do. I mean, I, I'm a strong believer of that. I mean, if 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 you're ever working on a collaborative project, it could be you know, here locally or across many different time zones, you know, once that goal is made, once that project has been established and there may be a little time left over for a little hot wash, as they say, <laughs> to, 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 to go over some of the major points, that's over. Time is done. Everyone has done their shift. You can go home. And I'm a strong believer of that because even, you know, working with folks in the nonprofit sector, you know, it's still goal orientated. Everybody's working towards a particular goal. But once that event is over, you know, feel free. You know, the rest of the time is yours. Yeah, especially like I work with some people that just want to sit on the clock and get paid because they obviously have more bills and they have kids and all this type of stuff. I'm like, then let them do that. But that doesn't make sense for me to waste my time if I feel like I've completed what I needed to do and go home. You know, there's nothing else for me here, but just to sit around and wait, like I have to wait on a housekeeper or something. It's like, it wouldn't make sense because they could have barely any work that day, but they can ride the clock till four or five. And I'm like, it doesn't make sense, but it's easier for them. It's understandable. I think that, you know, work, there should be a new kind of work ethic or kind of work regulations where if you get your work done and you feel like you've completed and your work is completed and your manager gives it the okay, you should be able to go home. 
Yeah. I mean, when you take a look at other countries around the world, um, we can probably take a look at how Denmark and Norway and uh, even when I visited the Netherlands, you know, they have a different concept that says, you know, we're working towards projects, working towards goals. You know, we're working to, in this particular sector. But once our tasks are complete, I'm getting on my bike, I'm getting <laughs> on my tram, I'm, I'm having a, a, a Heineken and, and Amsterdam Central, <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, I'm out of here. And uh, I, I look at that society and they are working pretty well. Um, when I visited Germany, um, same concept. You know, the Germans are very efficient at a lot of things. And one of the things they're very efficient at is uh, putting a lot of um, effort and a lot of their um, time management in a very constructive way. I mean, they have a very, very, very good structure with reduced work week where they can actually get a lot of things done within a time period that's been set up already. But once that time period is over and or once those goals have been met, trust me, they are out the door. <laughs> Do you think that creates a better environment for someone to have a better headspace going back into work? Because usually after the weekend for that Monday or Tuesday or whatever, you're like, oh, all right, weekend's over. I'm ready to get back to work. And then after you work that day and then you have to go back the next day and the next couple of days, you're like, fuck, when is the weekend? <laughs> well, you know, it, you know, I, that's a true concept. But once again, you know, you know, we are are moving towards a society where everything is really goal structured, goal orientated and wherever the task it has, you know, because in some situations, you know, the weekend does not need to start on time or end on time. And same thing for the work week itself. Um, you look at certain scenarios, whereas you know, the goal is the work of until maybe that Monday, but then you have Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday are going to be off because the task is not requiring you to be active those days. So, you know, it, it goes back again. It's like, we don't really need to be sitting around riding on money. You know, we can just go out there and do what we need to do within the time period that's respectful to our, our, our general workforce and just keep things going. A lot of the things you can do, you know, like say, for example, I look at myself, you know, I don't start my work week on a Monday, you know, for the most part, I started on a Tuesday. And that's usually because sometimes activities that I do in my work, sometimes extends into the weekend. But at least I know that coming up, you know, when the work week comes up, I know I need to start that task Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, or whatever the case might be. Do you find that like, maybe if, instead of just like some people create schedules at work that um kind of come out on like a day and then it seems like you can't plan your week out because it comes out on like the last day of the schedule. It's like, well, then how am I supposed to going to know what my days off are? Do you think it's just easier if people are asked what days they want off and then they're given those rather than just getting a random day throughout the week? Yeah, I believe that people should be asked what days um, they want off. And, you know, a lot of that's usually structured around, um, other commitments you know if you are a um if you're working parents and you know both of you may have responsibility of uh for example going picking up the, the children from the daycare or the babysitter i mean you know obviously you know there's some sort of you know collaboration if you worked out there in terms of the hey boss you know i need to be off early on the particular days or not be in at all so sometimes that plays into the factor or it could be, you know, once again, you're working toward a particular goal, a particular task, 
And you know that the markets are, are closed in this country, you know, or you know the production of manufacturing going on in this particular part of the world is not active on these days. So therefore, you know, you don't need to be active. You can be out doing something else more beneficial. You know, sometimes it just takes a little, a little thought, a little research to really make the concept work. Well, like your and, uh, your work with dealing with the cultural education and first of all, just the system in general being uh, and kind of opening up the eyes and perspectives of other people and to other cultures and their beliefs and things. This all comes into sort and straight with business as well. It seems like certain businesses only hire certain cultures, you know, and I think it's all gets displayed in us through our education system, these stereotypical views when it comes to music, these stereotypical views when it comes to so many things on how we choose to live and act as adults. It all stems from where we come from as kids. When in the system, they're teaching us, you know, who was the most important, who was the ones that were hurt, who was the ones that was this. It's all history, yes, but they don't teach it in a very helpful way. They 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 show you um, kind of like a one-sided look at things. Yeah, and, and it's so funny because one of the things that we are involved with uh, is culinary uh, in our nonprofit. Uh, what we do, we support um, culinary programs that teach our youth uh, from various backgrounds uh, how to cook in other cultures. And, you know, why do we do that? Well, um, these days um, we have a lot of restaurants out there that are fusion. Uh, they're not really one culture, they're, they're really a fusion of, of, of multiple cultures. Yeah, sometimes, like, <laughs> sometimes they're not even that culture either. Like when you say authentic Asian food, you go to a place <laughs> that is an Asian person cooking your food. I've studied on this one guy who's a chef who was raised in Japan. I'll give you a perfect example. I was in, uh, yeah, i give you a perfect example. I was over in uh, Paris, uh, I think it was last year when I was in Paris. Um, the hotel I was staying at right across the street was a uh, renowned Italian restaurant. And I said, wow, let me just go over here and just, you know, check it out. Maybe to have a couple of appetizers, a couple of drinks. And I walk in and it was all Asian. And I said to them, I said, you know, is this am a I restaurant? The, am I in the right place? Right. You know, and I said to them, I said, you know, you know, I'll say it in English. I basically say, is this a restaurant, an Italian, Italian restaurant, or this is a Chinese restaurant? And they said, no, this is Italian. And I said, okay. <laughs> but, but, you know, you know, through our culinary programs, you know, you do have youth and folks from various backgrounds who would love to learn how to cook in another culture. But at the same time, it also helps the, um, the food service industry as well as the hospitality industry. Um, hotels love to hire chefs who have this multidimensional background because you never know, you know, when the menu shifts, when you may have a new lifestyle coming into that hotel and you need to be able to be flexible and, you know, cook and, you know, and serve in other cultures. So we think it's definitely a good melting pot you know, excuse the pun for doing that. And it gives everybody a greater exposure because you get to learn, you get to say, hey, you know, now I see why Asian cooking is like this. Now I see why the South American cuisines are like what they are. Now I see why, you know, people in uh, East Africa, you know, cook with this method. 
you know, it goes right on time. And so, you know, being, being in a uh, diverse culture, especially in the culinary, it definitely uh, works well in the workforce. It works well, you know, with the individual as well. Well, when you start incorporating other foods from other cultures, you expand your taste buds, man. You, you, you find, oh, yeah. you find an interest you might not have thought you would like. I mean, I work with a Haitian woman and she brought in goat. I've never had goat in my entire life. And <laughs> I, I looked at it and it looked like a, like a, like kind of like a dark, like chewy, like teriyaki bit. Like, she bringing like, the goat head? No. She, goat. I, she just brought in some goat and some rice. It was like, it's chopped up. She made it real nice, but no, she just brought in this like little chunks. She didn't tell me there was a fucking bone inside of it. So I grab it, put it in my mouth and chew down. And all I hear is a crunch. I'm like, ow. And like, but it was some of the best food I've ever had, man. Like that's some good stuff that she had brown rice. She cooked it, put this little sauce that she made because she used to be a, a chef in, in Haiti. And I was like, this is really, really interesting. And I would have never known about this without this kind of just diving into something. I've tried Haitian mud cookies. That's, I wouldn't recommend eating those because they're not the best for your digestive system, but they're, they're not bad depending on, you know, who cooks them. This woman made her grandma's recipe, which made it taste like snickerdoodles. And I'm giving her crap for it because if anybody doesn't know what a Haitian mud cookie is, it's 90% dirt, 5% butter and 5% salt. They use it to keep themselves off starvation. So I'm talking to her and she tells me, yeah, we use clean dirt. I'm like fucking clean dirt. What did you just tell me? And she's like, it just has more essential irons and stuff. And I'm like, okay, well, bring it in and I'll try it. It was pretty good, man. I mean, that's better than I could think of like a Krispy Kreme donut from down here. Man, did she let it bake in the uh, in the sun or did she put them in an oven? How did she do them? She, she wouldn't give me all the details of what was really like the little spice or whatever they put on top of it. But she was like, right. she baked them in the oven and then let right. them sit out for a little while and actually Got truly it. dry out. And I was like... They weren't bad. I mean, they were actually pretty moist too, which I was surprised. And I was like, it, it was just beneficial. Yeah, I mean, um, I haven't, I haven't eaten a mud cookie. I don't know how long, <laughs> but you know, I do know, you know, you know the the the, the background of it, and uh, it's kind of glad you you brought that up because it gives you gives you a, a, a an experience of you know not only of the the food, but also the culture and also the history of, you know, why, you know, the mud cookies were put in place, you know, because, you know, a lot of the impoverished people in Haiti, that's what they had to rely on and to, to make it work. But uh, no, it's just a great experience overall. I mean, uh, it's, it's, it's like I said, going back to the whole thing, being in, in Paris and going into that Italian restaurant and seeing uh, Chinese uh, uh, folks running the place. Um, you know, it's just like going back to, um, um, here in New York City, um, going to the Bronx and going over towards, you know, some of the traditional pizzerias, you know, in Arthur Avenue. And, you know, looking there, you see, you know, some of the traditional guys from like, you know, back in the day, you know, you know, there's one guy named, I remember when I was a kid, named Giuseppe, uh, I kept, kept Mr. Giuseppe's last name, but everybody knew about Mr. Giuseppe. And, you know, it, it was, when they made pizza, you know, it's not like they did like these days with a measuring cup, they were you know, you know, you know, you want a sausages on your pizza. Mr. Seppi will put his hand into the sausage pail. Whatever he pulled out, that's what you got on your pizza. <laughs> that was you take you what know. he gave you. That's what he did. You take what he gave <laughs> <Yeah>. you. 
I mean, I look, I'm telling you, if they added more culture into school lunches and actually took the time, like I get like it's school lunch. Okay. I mean, some of the best school lunch pizza, let's talk about pizza that, that, that every day, it doesn't matter if you packed a lunch, if they had, it was, it was pizza day at school. You're buying, you're buying, you're buying pizza. Just, that's just happening. But if they looked at narrowing down things and maybe introducing better stuff, like more incorporated foods, like cultural foods, like we had taco day too, but it was like, it's not, I guess that's as much culture as they were getting when it came to the food. But I was like, there's so much more you could be trying. Like I know some people that are from another country that are chefs at local schools where they'll go and ask parents like, Hey, do you mind if your kid can try this, give them a list of ingredients that go into this recipe and they create something for the kids. And the kids have a whole new perspective. Like I never knew that this food could be like this. Next thing you know, they end up, you know, expanding their palate out. It seems like it's easier for people to, be able to expand their palate or their creative sense when they're young or when they're super old, but when they're adults, they just get comfortable with the food they're eating. Yeah. And it is a shame because, you know, we really need to, you know, expand upon our palates. Um, you know, for myself, you know, growing up, um, I did my best to try anything and everything. And, um, you know, being in New York city, uh, definitely afforded, uh, me that luxury of going from neighborhood to neighborhood to neighborhood and trying just a little bit of everything uh, before actually zeroing and zeroing in on certain things says, oh, okay, I can, um, you know, I can, I can deal with that more often. But no, it's just a great experience. And you get to meet people. You really get to, you know, sit down with families. Um, you get to share meals, share stories, share experiences, you know, while you, you know, chopping down on some stuff that you <laughs> did not know actually existed on the face of the earth. <laughs> yeah. I think that you can definitely expand your category. Like we, we talked about, you know, just better education of cultures. Well, this is the best education of cultures. It doesn't have to have to do with the text or the history, but more of the concept behind just, you know, expanding your mind out to different things you would have never tried, trying art, you know, trying different forms of whatever another culture looks at, like find something, you know, easily just type in on Google, you know, what is this, what, what is their main source of art or what is their main source of whatever? And just be able to expand your category out. I mean, we live in a comfortable world where we're surrounded with people that do the same shit all the time. So you're not going to get into new open things. And with immigration, all this stuff, you get to see those new things come in here and it kind of influences people in a better way. Yeah, and it's, it's kind of interesting how you how you brought up art, um, which is one of the things that we are involved with as well. And, you know, just taking it, for example, uh, through dance, um, we've actually supported a lot of um, dance, <clears throat> dance programs and where we invited um, artists from all over the world to come and not only show their dance techniques, but how it relates to their culture and their movement as a people. And, um, <clears throat> you know, sometimes you just look at some of the amazing dances that came out of perhaps like Africa or even South America. But, you know, I've, I've, I've found a lot of the dances that came out of, uh, you know, Northern and Western Europe to be, uh, you know, quite interesting. Yeah, like um, all, everything when we go and say, what's a tr traditional dance? Like when you go see like a cultural dance, like Native American, you know, the stuff that literally shows passion behind it. 
like when you watch that stuff, they're not just creating a, a, a little like tap, tap, watch me whip, watch me nay, nay. It's a concept of they're trying to teach you a story as well as bring you into their traditional background. Yeah. And, you know, it, it really tells the story, it tells the history. And, you know, in, in some cultures, it was a way of sending messages. Uh, it was a way of communication. Firing up so, a smoke signal. <laughs> but, you know, that was one of the ways that, you know, we were so amazed and exposing, you know, you know, people, large audiences to say, hey, you know, this the type of dancing that you see in the United States, you know, how diverse it may be. There is a whole nother concept on the other side of the, uh, the world where they look at us and say, wow, you know, we have to look at them and say, wow, you know, we need to come together and just everybody has a great time and, you know, and be engulfed in the culture and engulfed in the music. A another way we've, you know, really expand upon our multiculturalism um, is through art again, but more in the uh, physical art. Uh, we're talking about, uh, I'll give you a perfect example, uh, graffiti. Um, you know, being, you know, here in New York City, you know, growing up in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s, um, being exposed to graffiti on large platforms, um, you know, was right in front of you. I mean, it was it was very expansive. That's one of the best forms of creativity is graffiti. I mean, I've been to Hawaii, man. And mm -hmm. when you get off this airport, and I, I talked about it before in the podcast, but it's one of the most memorable pieces of graffiti when I started looking at it as art. Because, I mean, in my town, we got graffiti. But ain't nobody here a Picasso. It's everyone's drawing <laughs> dicks on buildings and stuff. And it's not even – it's just not – it's not good to look at, but when you go to somewhere and you look at like, when I got off the airplane in Hawaii, there was the cool, the Hawaiian punch guy that, that dude with the red hair. Yeah. He's on this giant 50 story building painted. Like someone gave him a lift to go and paint the whole thing. Like some dude paid to have that on his building. And in one hand he's holding the world. And in the other hand, he's holding a factory and there's like a portal that's leading all the smoke from the factory onto the earth. And it's, it was the most impactful art I've ever seen. And you see stuff all through pictures. People will be walking under a bridge and they'll be like Stevie Wonder playing notes on one side. And as the notes are floating all the way down the wall under the bridge, it's turning into different things, birds and just going off. It's a, that's amazing art. Yeah. And, you know, you're right on point with that because, you know, growing up in New York City, I was only exposed to the platforms that I saw, you know, in the Bronx and Brooklyn and so forth. Um, but traveling through, for example, through Western Europe, um, seeing the graffiti, um, <laughs> I've actually, I went to the Berlin Wall about uh, four years ago, four or five years ago, I visited the Berlin Wall. And just seeing the entire parts of the remaining parts of the wall that are still up, how the graffiti has been placed on these walls telling the story it is almost as if you know someone walked up had a vision of what times were like and just went out there and just did it and it's amazing i mean it just it just tells a complete story complete history and it and it and it tells it on both sides it, it you know some of the graffiti actually was in support of what the culture was back in those days in the 20s 30s 40s and early 50s all the way through up to the nuanced graffiti of how life is for germans now in the 80s 90s into the new millennium and moving forward um 
I mean, even the whole coming together, being a part of a divided culture of being a part of East Germany, West Germany, you know, how that barrier has now been broken down. There's graffiti that tells that story. So I was there in awe, just looking at, you know, you know, that whole experience. Um, another place was in London. Um, it was a little small area, not too far from, I believe was, was it was either the London Bridge or the Tower Bridge, but now it's all brand new and it got nice new development. But <laughs> just walking through, you know, those neighborhoods, those side streets, you know, just getting that experience saying, you know, wow, you know, this type of artwork exists, you know, on the other side of the, on the other side of the pond, as they say, <laughs> yeah. and, you know, and done with that, with that heartfelt, you know, you really feel that someone actually put their heart into this when they wanted to make that expression, you know, on that wall. It's a part of the reason why a lot of train um, railroad systems, a lot of the trains that run on them, they keep a lot of the graffiti on the train on um, the concept of some of it's nicely well done. Like it shows an expression of that kind of character to that train as well. You know, it's it's crazy to see, but like I remember so many times stopping at a railroad track and then just seeing this long ass train that feels like it's never going to get across the tracks, <laughs> go across. And I'm looking and I just see all this like graffiti art and I'm like, there's some that's tastefully well done. And I can see where like a business or some person would put that on there because it's a form of expression and creativity. I mean, it doesn't always have to be on a canvas. You know, I always look at the Key and Peel episode. I don't know if you're familiar with them, but um, they had a skit where uh, it was a, these gangs. They were drawing graffiti on the wall and a bunch of them were doing like just quick little circles and messed up symbols. And then um, this one dude pulls out a sheet and starts painting the wall with a layer of white paint to get the base coat down. And then like before he even starts spray, spray painting, they're like, what are you doing, man? Just spray paint the wall. He's like, I got to make sure the foundation's right. And like, it was too funny because like, it's true. Like when someone puts more time and character into something that they create, it can honestly impact you a lot more than just something so simple. Yeah. And, you know, I, I enjoy it. I mean, I really enjoy, you know, looking at this, experiencing it, especially during, uh, you know, my travels and, um, you know, bringing back, you know, great stories and letting everyone know that, you know, there is a life, you know, outside of, you know, where we live. Um, it's a life that needs to be experienced by all. Um, and it's very helpful because it'll make you look not only uh, at others differently, but it'll make you look at yourself differently. And <clears throat> look at everyone and look into your own experience and say, hey, you know, there's still a lot more for me to do uh, in this world. Do you feel like with more of like keeping graffiti around or just keeping these type of small educational aspects into different cultures that it's going to create a more positive environment for people to live in, knowing that there's this beautiful thing about something or another culture? Oh, I believe in. Oh, yes. You know, please keep graffiti around, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, I, I venture through neighborhoods now and there are spectacular graffiti murals. Um, in Harlem, for example, uh, here in New York City, I have several neighborhoods in Brooklyn. I'm just saying places locally that I where I live. My goodness, you know, if we were to build over, paint over um, these particular events, I mean, my goodness, you're 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 ripping away, you know, the pre the particular culture of that neighborhood. 
you know, I, I believe in, you know, those artistic expressions. I mean, I've, you know, gone into certain areas of, um, of Brooklyn um, that are, you know, predominantly of other cultures and, you know, just seeing their expressions on their walls, uh, what they're trying to, you know, put out there, you know, ripping that away, you know, takes away from that culture. Um, it, it, it becomes an expanse um, conversation um, because most communities um, nationwide are going through what they call regentification. Um, and that's really a, a term that people can argue about for a decade or, <laughs> or a lifetime. But, you know, to have a community that was once part of another culture and that culture decides to leave and then the property value of the remaining folks that are there starts to go down and now you come back to reclaim the property or retake the property or buy the property and kick everybody else out to enact another culture and if you don't get your way you probably set up an economic empowerment zone and you know it's, 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 it's a big argument but the point I'm trying to make is that you know you can have regentification right next door to existing culture. You know, and I've seen it in several communities where you can have these expansive developments that are a part of a regentification process, but you can still have right next door that existing culture that makes that neighborhood what it is. I think so when you when you especially walk down a neighborhood in a certain area. Like a lot is shown, especially by graffiti, but mostly, you know, how people can tell stories. Well, buildings can tell stories as well. You know, it shows a type of character to that city. You know, if everything was so squeaky clean and new, you wouldn't look at it with as much character as you would with a building that has these cracks in the brick that have these graffitis or, you know, just shaping in a way that looks like they've been worn down by weather or whatever events because it, you know, walking through a city like New York, you know, where riots can take place or riots have taken place walking through any city you know you get a story from it and i think when people cover that up and they choose to make the neighborhood better looking you're not really making it better looking but you're clouding up a past you're clouding up a tale that it has to tell yeah you know it's it's you know it's, it's something that you know the folks who are on the community boards the folks who are on the planning commissions, um, they need to be multicultural educated, <laughs> you know, to a certain extent um, and not have a single dimensional thinking. And that, you know, also is part of, you know, the problem. Um, one of the things that's kind of interesting, you know, here in New York, um, and I've been to a few community board meetings on uh, other issues. Uh, it was allowing folks who actually lived in other neighborhoods to serve on community boards outside of their district. And I was kind of two-sided on the issue. I really didn't have an opinion either or. Uh, I could understand why, you know, the city was allowing that because it would give an outside opinion on another uh, purpose, which could not be influenced 
You know, you have a third party looking at the process saying, okay, now I can see more clearly why this wanted to be happening that way. But at the same time, it took away valuable seats um, from the existing culture, the existing uh, neighborhood, um, which could have served, you know, the existing population. So it's, it's still a two-sided issue with me, but I can understand, you know, why they do it because of, because of multiculturalism, because you have people say, well, I want to do this in this particular community. And well, this community has been looking like this for the last 25 years. Well, I want to introduce this new concept. You might need a third party to say, well, maybe there's a way we can collaborate. We can all work together to make it all better for, for both sides. It's always know, so about it's, bringing another perspective. And I definitely think, you know, having a new eyes to an old situation can help you conquer it a little bit too. And yeah. also bring in that extra perspective. And I mean, Rich, it's been awesome having you on the podcast. I really appreciate you taking your Monday off to be able <laughs> to sit down and have a podcast with me, man, because it's been awesome talking to you. Hey, I, I love this. And um, hey, hopefully we can collaborate sometime in the future. Right on, man. Well, I want to give you here a minute at the end to kind of promote your content so people can find your work. Yeah, I mean, you can basically... Just go to uh, Instagram and just look up Rich Cox as R-I-C-H-C-O-X. Um, and from there, you can basically know more about me. And then uh, they can always um, instant messenger me or DM me um, uh, for more about the not-for-profit organization I work for. And um, it, we just want to make the world a better place and just want to make um, you know, our collaborative thinking and pluralism everyone's thinking. Open the minds to all perspectives. Yes, sir. I like it. Well, thanks so much for listening to this episode of Out of the Blank and stay tuned for our next episode.